The baking soda and vinegar experiment is one of the most well-known science experiments of all time. Its purpose is to mainly expose small children to the scientific process. And as a child, this experiment is incredible, sparking both amazement and curiosity within the tiny bubble explosion. Today, I talked to a man who hasn't lost that curiosity, Sebastian Kachoba. He is the co-founder of Binomica Labs, which encourages amateur science and discovery within the general public. My name is Nathan, and this is At Risk. Can you start by introducing yourself, what you do, and your pronouns? Sure. Um, so my name is Sebastian Kachoba. My uh, pronouns are he, him. And I am an amateur biologist with a focus on plants. Um, and I work from my home lab, which is the third bedroom of my mom's apartment. And what was a hobby is now full-time, where I do contract research for universities and startups. And what does it mean to be an amateur biologist? That's a great question. Um, that's something I've been trying to figure out for the last like 15 years or so. Um, I thought I was a biohacker. I don't really identify with that much anymore. Um, but I've, I've, for lack of better words and pun slightly intended, I did fall in love with the idea of the word amateur, uh, the French interpretation for love of, right? An amateur of some, something is someone who does a thing for the love of it, for the enjoyment of it, purely for the pleasure of it. Um, and I find a lot of my work to be hedonic in the sense where I, I essentially just follow my curiosity and whatever research topics come about. Like I find the practice of bio-research to be a really fulfilling hobby. And I'm really fortunate that I turned that hobby into a semi-pro kind of situation where I get to pay the bills doing my hobby. And I know that you also run a nonprofit or co-run a nonprofit. Um, what's up with that? Sure. Um, okay. So I found a like-minded individual, my friend Sungwon Lim. Uh, he was a co-founder of Genspace a long, long time ago, one of the first biohacker spaces, uh, community labs in, uh, in the world, I believe, uh, flagshipped here in New York. And he, uh, he and I have been uh, collaborating on some small projects here and there for the better part of like a decade. Um, but about six years ago, he asked me, he's like, hey, do you want to be a part of this? I said, of course. So he started this, he started this nonprofit um, as kind of a, a way to uh, enable educators and other folks to do publishable research, right? So our idea is that there's no, um, we're not gatekeeping by any stretch of the imagination. What we really want to do is provide the, the software, hardware, thoughtware, and wetware necessary to do biological research, regardless of who you are. So whether you're a retired plumber, stay-at-home mom, uh, a student in Cairo, Egypt, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, we try to do science really frugal and then distribute those tools and plans and materials, if, if possible, to other folks so that we can make a, a research culture out of this really decentralized and uh, spread out, uh, loosely, loosely connected group of individuals doing research on their own dime, right? So there isn't, there's been precedents for you know, like amateurs 
contributing to science for a really long time, um, you know, in astronomy and physics and chemistry, um, and in some cases in biology. But for some reason, biological research re, uh, research has this not for lack of better words, this like air of pretension when it comes to who can contribute, right? It seems to be one of the more gate-kept uh, fields of natural sciences, um, which is unfortunate, but uh, we want to kind of bring that back, right? So imagine like the gentleman science of the 1800s without the sexism, racism, and all that other bullshit that comes with this. Um, so just really inclusive, open to everyone and anyone, and just embracing the, the curiosity that is biological research. As a as a human endeavor, as if as if it were a craft or an art. And I know that this seems a little bit silly, um, but if you have people in the general public publishing their own research, how can you be sure that it's correct? Sure. Um, the same question can be had about uh, all other sciences. So what we want to do is focus on the concept of publishable research, right? So now when if you write your research on a blog, that's not necessarily published because it's not archived by some type of a government entity such that it's it's maintained forever, right? And the second part is that it hasn't gone under any type of review. So what we want to provide is kind of a pre-preprint prep, right? So um, over the last uh, 10 years, the concept of the preprint, right? Writing a, a small, uh, basically plastering your work um, for all to see prior to submitting it to a journal for formal peer review, which would give you a lot of feedback. Um, that process is free. Submitting to a formal journal uh, costs uh, thousands of dollars where open access versions of nature can go up to $13,000 that the author has to pay if they want their manuscript to be submitted. Now that's crazy. Um, that's crazy for many reasons where 13,000 is the budget for like multiple year, a multiple year experiment, right? So you're kind of wasting your money just for the prestige. And right. if you're not a professional scientist, you don't need that prestige. Uh, what you really want is to get your data out in a manner that is uh, archivable, right? So like if you put on a blog, the blog dies with you and your right. work was just for you. And if you're contributing to science, you want it to be useful across space and time, right? So like a lot of the, the early work I did with media, um, like the, the liquid food of bacteria, I was citing papers from like the late 1800s. That wouldn't right. be the case if that's if all that work was written in somebody's diary, right? It had to have been archived and published and made accessible. And access to information is one of the key uh, key points of being a scientist, right? It's the dissemination of information. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is set up this sort of invisible college, right? A concept that uh, Marie Curie coined a very long time ago. Um, she, uh, not, without going into the story too much, it's essentially a group of reviewers, maybe like uh, fifteen or twenty of established researchers, early career, retired researchers, professor, emeritus, um, whoever, um, from different uh, fields of science that would review a manuscript that maybe was written by a 12-year-old, maybe by uh, a person who has never done formal science before, and kind of just be like an English teacher where they highlight with a red pen sentences saying, okay, this is crap, work on this. Uh, get, just basically give you constructive feedback to take your curiosity without judging it based off of merit, which is a nebulous term, or uh, judging it based off of impact, which is another bullshit term, um, and more focus on without shaping the direction, can you shape the rigor? Can you help, can you help the student, this researcher, apply rigor to their question such that it is reproducible and makes logical sense, right? Because at the end of the day, science is a narrative. It's structured storytelling. And there's a, there's a craft to this. And this craft can only be learned if you're a graduate student uh, already deeply entrenched in your topic. 
Right. But there are many folks that study um, like feeding, if you have koi fish, right, and you want to feed them things, trying to figure out what your own bespoke fish food can be and using a, a bit of statistics to apply how much of your koi fish has grown in weight with this dosage of food versus a control, right? Just basically experimental design can be applied to many aspects. And what we want to do is get these established researchers to sit down for an hour every two months or something and review some manuscripts written by folks that aren't part of academia to give them that type of feedback. And then in doing so, uh, those peers can also review each other, right? And have this like consortium effect where everybody starts reviewing each other's and you just get this like community version of feedback. Because the ultimate goal is for you to grow as a scientist, not necessarily right. to uh, bolster your career or have tenure options, because that doesn't apply to these folks, right? Most of the people who we are targeting for our audience are folks that are already doing this, really want to do so, and um, are not necessarily interested in doing this as a profession. And right. who do you have reviewing all of these manuscripts? Okay, so um, this is this is a project in its most nascent, right? Because the first thing we wanted to do, um, we don't want to be those folks that just kind of talk the talk, right? We're just be like, oh, we should just have informal peer review, right? Without putting our money where our mouths are um, and our effort as well. So the first thing we wanted to do before we say anything is actually do a research project and publish, right? And we're extremely close to, uh, to having a live preprint of our work. Um, and I'll tell, tell you a little bit more about that work later, but essentially I hold no formal degree. I'm a college dropout. Um, so is, is my research partner, Sung. And um, we're doing this from the perspective of an amateur. In fact, our, our paper title is the um, single flow cell nanopore sequencing of Dinococcus radiophilus, an amateur research perspective specifically, right? So in the very title of our work, we're focusing on all of this science within the, through the lens of an amateur. Right. Like we had to learn bioinformatics ourselves. We had to learn a lot of microbiology ourselves. And so it was a great educational point, but it was also um, a lead by example situation where we want to be one of the first folks to go through this review process. So I'm in the pro I'm in the process right now of, of uh, grouping together a bunch of my friends off Twitter, which happen to be, you know, formal professors at universities to humor me um, with this informal thesis. Right. So right. we have this, this one paper that's going to go to actual publication, formal peer review, and that'll be two amateur biologists publishing formally. And then the second part is um, I came up with this thesis called Flowers for Everyone, which is um, a little bit complicated and, and more involved. But essentially, I'm putting myself through the ringer as, a, as an amateur in an informal PhD. Right. So I got a couple of, a couple of my friends um, who I don't know if they want to be named right now, so I won't name drop. Um, but established researchers and professors who are humoring me at, uh, with a defense committee where I'm going to make a P PhD thesis and then defend in front of them uh, with all like monthly meetings and all that stuff. The, the full PhD student experience, but I won't get any credit for it. Hmm. It's just for because the, the goal of the P well, I'll get credit in the form of uh, publication because I do have to publish papers. Each chapter of my thesis has to be a paper conventionally. Now, because I'm not doing this for academia, it doesn't have to be conventionally like that, but it's a nice rubric to fit. And so, um, yeah, so I'm going to go through all the motions, publish those papers, and then eventually have my dissertation uh, submitted. They're going to review it. And then if, the, if I'm cool, I mean, if it's cool, um, I go for a defense, a formal defense, and they will right. humor me and just tear me a new one because the, the product of a PhD is not a thesis, it's you, right? It's, it's a chance for mentors to kind of hone you 
and to turn you into a better biologist than what you were when you first started. And that's all I wanted from this experience, to be honest. And uh, could you do me a favor? Because oftentimes when I'm having conversations with my guests, a lot of the stuff that they're talking about kind of goes a little bit over my head as I am only, you know, a measly high school student. Um, But could you just give me like a quick summary of what we've talked about so far? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, So, all right, so in short, uh, Binomic Labs is focusing on making the the tools and information and resources available so that amateurs can do publishable research. Um, We're setting up a a committee of established formal scientists to review work done by amateurs and give them constructive feedback without changing the direction of their research. Oh, okay. so if you want to study ladybugs, go for it. You don't. You do not have to justify your curiosity. What you have to justify is your experimental design. Right. Right. Okay. So no matter what the topic is, the whole point is to make you a better version of you as a biologist. So yeah. so it's not really to to for your own personal gain. It's for your own personal curiosity. Yeah. It's 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 personal growth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I had a different idea in my mind, and this makes it a lot clearer. What about your program is different from the traditional way to do things to publish information? Okay. Um, sure. The well, so so we so we at Binomica, funny statement. Uh so Vian Sung, we consider uh, all science to be science if it passes peer review. Right. So we don't want to make amateur science uh, second rate in the sense of just like, oh, this is science for fun. So don't take it with a grain of salt. It's more of like take it with the same grain of salt as you would a published paper because it's gone through a review process and the review process is open. So we're taking the best parts of of the peer review process, especially the new stuff, like, for example, transparency. So normally when you publish, uh, when you send your manuscript to a journal, the journal sends the manuscript to three reviewers. And they each systematically tear you a new one, right? Like they, they go through your thing with a fine tooth comb, ideally, right? They're not paid. So it's, it's free labor. That's how academia kind of maintains its community. Um, you're anonymous in many cases. So you can kind of be a little bit more rude, which is unfortunate. A lot of people just get destroyed in these review processes. Um, but those three people basically gatekeep whether or not your work is worthy of being published, right? Mm. Now, worthiness and scientific soundness are sometimes decoupled. They're sometimes removed from each other, where it could be a really cool project, but one of the reviewers think it's boring, which is something I, I deeply loathe. And I've, I've talked to professors about this where they, yeah, they've gotten feedback saying, oh, the topic's a bit boring. Like, what, what the hell does that mean? Um, right. that's, that, that's absurd. But um, yeah, sometimes the reviewers are subjective and three people, isn't necessarily enough to validate whether or not your your science is true, because uh, science isn't made to to prove things. You can't prove stuff. You can just falsify things. You can essentially disprove things, right? Science is a mechanism that helps us not fool ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you'll never be a hundred percent certain, but you can have a certainty whether or not something is false, right? Not true, but whether or not something is false. So we do statistical tests. In, in science in order to see whether or not our hypothesis is uh, is uh, occurring more than a 50-50 chance, whether what you're observing is a coin flip or it's something significant. And the word significant is loaded and for a different discussion. But, um, but what we're trying to do is remove the um, 
the subjectivity from the review process where people think of impact, saying like, oh, this isn't impactful enough for our journal. That doesn't apply with us because we're not a journal. We just want you to make a preprint at the absolute maximum. Like you don't have to do anything more than that. And preprints are free. We just want to help you if you are interested in applying rigor to your to your curiosity, whatever it may be. And so in doing so, your the topics can be very wide. Now, my expertise is in the domain of biology, so I don't know enough chemistry or physics to be able to produce reviews, um, but I can recruit and find physicists and chemists that are would be willing to do so, right? Right. Um, in order to you know have experts in that field with absolutely no pressure and no academic you know uh, uh, punishment for for making a crappy paper, give you feedback, honest, constructive, helpful feedback, um, and I think that's the aspect of mentorship that people don't get until they go to grad school, if they're even lucky to get that kind of mentorship. And this is where, where our, our program differs in the sense that we don't, we don't gatekeep topics. We just try to expose people to folks that do this for a living to give them a little bit more of a uh, helpful advice, advice that you don't necessarily have to take. It's just if you want your science to be reproducible and if you want your science to be well communicated, um, there is a craft to this. There's people right. way smarter than us that have thought of methods to do so. And it's, and it's worth considering. And what makes you believe that supporting all of these new biologists um, important? Well, one of the issues is that um, so far, the bulk of all of our problems um, have not gone away. And we have some of the smartest minds on the planet uh, making decisions for the rest of humanity. And the problems are still there. And the problems are growing in complexity, right? Like, for example, climate issues, energy issues, um, food, right? By 2050, estimated conservatively about 9 billion people will emerge on this planet. Um, that's a lot of mouths to feed. And because of our logistical issues with shipping food and keeping it cold and food spoiling, um, we lose a large proportion of how much we grow to, because of this lack of infrastructure. So we might not actually have enough food to feed everybody. And these are huge problems. And I think one of the most important uh, observations that have happened in, in science when people look at the history of science is they've noticed that science advances one funeral at a time. And I know that sounds really dark, but basically a field blossoms after the death of a star player in that field, if that makes sense. You leave room for, for different ideas to emerge once the biggest names go away. Right. And this type of a, of, a, of a pattern is observable with all the breakthroughs that we've had in science was because some naysayer who was an expert in that field passed away and left room for other people. Now, I'm not saying that that anybody needs to die. But what I'm saying is that there should be a diversity of thought. Right. Because people coming from different perspectives, I mean, different walks of life have different perspectives of how to approach something. And if we all converge on a, on a single point right, or on similar points, we, chances are, with more minds on deck, we can have a larger sample size of problem solving, right? We can throw more things at the wall and see what sticks. Because one of the interesting aspects of being an amateur is that you work on a shoestring budget, and you might not be a total expert in your field, which means that there are things you don't know are impossible, and you'll try them anyway. Maybe you'll get lucky. Maybe there are things that we haven't explored. Right. And one of the, the, the most important aspects of this is that there are more questions in science than there are stars in the universe, right? There's like 10 to the 34 stars and um, estimated. And there's infinite diversity of questions that you can ask. There is a nature paper published in, I think, 2010 that stated when it comes to eukaryotic life, uh, cells that have a nucleus, 
species that have a nucleus, 86% of all the species on this planet have yet to be discovered. Now, this was a huge statement, have yet to be discovered. So whenever we take samples of ocean water and we do this thing called a, a metagenomic uh, run, where we do metagenomic sequencing, where essentially we isolate all the DNA from that, uh, from that sample of water, all the algae, all the bacteria, all the fungi, with no discrimination, just all of it, and sequence it, we start getting sequences that don't line up with everything, with anything we've sequenced before. Every right. time. New species constantly, all the time. And, those, and this study was on eukaryotes, which is a much smaller amount of, uh, of the tree of life. The overwhelming majority are the prokaryotes, the bacteria, and the, um, uh, the archaea especially. All of these things contribute to an enormity of species that are being evolved, like Darwin said, all the time. Right? Endless forms most beautiful are evolving actively. And so there's no way for a select group of a population to be able to study all of these. And there are things we know we don't know and things we don't know we don't know. So in this case, it's a brute force approach where more people try stuff. Eventually, you get to a point where you've, you've covered more ground than you would have if you just let the, the few highly specialized elites take over. right? Because one of the, the difficulties of being a professional scientist is that you have to beg for money from the government. You have right. to get grants. And now if you're not doing the hot topic du jour, or if you're not doing something with quote unquote high impact, the chance of it getting funded is really low. So there's um, of the total uh, set of, of questions you can ask as a professional scientist, an, a very, very small subset of those questions are actually given money to do so. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're we're barely we're not efficient when we're asking these questions because we're only answering questions that lead to other questions that could lead to a cure for a disease or um, some type of an industrial benefit. There always has to be a justification. But because of this unknown, unknown aspect of the, the living world, um, it actually makes a lot more sense to have both have the elites do the, the, the super Formula One fancy research and then other folks just explore because you never know what you'll find. So as a final question to kind of wrap things up here, sure. what do you think are some of the key takeaways for anybody listening to this episode? Okay. Um, all right. That's fun. Um, okay. So number one, anyone and everyone can do science. Um, I mean that sincerely. Anyone can. Um, the resources for doing science were previously uh, very difficult to accumulate. But because of the rise of the internet and uh, open source uh, public, uh, open access publications and open source hardware and software, um, the tools to do so have dropped dramatically, but they're still not centralized. So one of the, the, the efforts that I hope that amateur biologists do is to take whatever knowledge they garner and write it down and form manuals, form tutorials, and help com contribute in an open community-focused fashion towards um, easier access so that the next generation of amateur scientists have even spend even less time gathering resources and more time doing cool science. Um, and the, the last part is that for anybody who thinks that they're born too late to explore the world, um, I hope this, this small interview gave you just a taste of how little we know and how much there's room for you to contribute to this conversation. And if you've piqued someone's interest about uh, Binomic Labs, how can they get involved? Okay, um, so my handle is a tiny green cell, and I'm on that on all social media. Um, 
we don't have membership because there is no membership. Um, we can uh, help in the interim while I'm trying to set up this, uh, uh, this review board. Um, we can help connect folks to other researchers or just kind of like bounce ideas off. They're uh, fine to uh, contact me at Sebastian at binomicallabs.org or just DM me on any social media platform. I kind of live on Twitter, so feel free to make a Twitter account and um, especially Twitter because science Twitter is really powerful, especially for students. And I re highly recommend folks to just join uh, join Twitter and um, follow follow researchers, follow the researchers that do stuff that they're interested in, you know, you know, DM them, ask them stuff. They're human beings and they're teachers first. So they love actually teaching these folks and they don't have much time. But when you approach somebody with purely out of curiosity, from my personal experience, I've seen it uh, do wonders. Like I'm now gainfully employed at Stanford University building robots for them because somebody on Twitter reached out and said, hey, I like what you're doing. Can you help me build something, right? And that was huge. That was a total informal uh, opportunity that happened just because I don't stop talking about what I do on social media. Um, so definitely, you know, be loud, talk about, talk about what you're doing, showcase your work and ask questions, but feel free to reach out anytime. All right, Sebastian, uh, thank you for taking some of your time out of your day to talk to me no and um, yeah good interview <laughs> thanks sir. thanks for listening you can find us on both instagram and twitter at at risk podcast if you enjoyed this episode Please, share it with some friends. It's the only way the show grows, and every person who listens makes a huge difference. Also, feel free to leave a rating or a review, because I read every single one, and it's always really nice to hear from some listeners. Anyways, that's all I have to say for this week, so please enjoy the beautiful weather, and I will talk to you again soon.